My guest today on the Ignium Sparks podcast is Robert Barnard Weston. This is a conversation which I loved having. It was, we'd lived, talked about so many different things. We talked about how we all should be taking action because there's a balance between prosperity and purpose and how we can all deliver something better for the planet and humanity by building our businesses with purpose at the heart. There's a great history that Robert talks about with his work with Anita Roddick at The Body Shop, with his work through Unilever about how they created sustainability and how the brands they created that had sustainability at heart delivered more prosperity than those others that didn't. Listen to the story. Listen to how communication plays out and how if we start communicating our message, the world becomes a better place internally and externally because the key is about engagement. So I hope you enjoy this show. I hope you take away some key nuggets around how we can all benefit the future prosperity of the planet by helping ourselves build those purpose-led businesses that have environmental, sustainable, and governance at heart of what we do, because that's the key to moving ourselves forward. Enjoy the show. And as always, if you have questions or comments, please contact me. It's phil at igniumconsult.com. And remember, for us to get this message out to a wider audience, we need engagement. We need more people to hear this message. So please feel good about forwarding this podcast to them. Leave us a review, because it's only by our reviews that people start picking it up. Let us know what you think of it. And also, who else do you believe would be a good guest for this show? Because we want to talk to those people to bring their story to life, to help us drive engagement through purpose and profitability for businesses, which will ultimately improve the sustainability of our planet and the engagement of our people we work with. Enjoy the show. Here's Robert Barnard West. So welcome back to the Sparks Wavening podcast. I'm Phil Rose, the host of the show. We've been running this podcast for the last two years with the intent of bringing our passion and purpose back to the world. We we aim at businesses, but this podcast is aimed at people, human beings who want to make a difference in their world and in their lives. So if you're one of those, a human being, this is the place for you. If you know other human beings who would benefit from this conversation, please feel free to send it on to them because we can then do our magic and bring joy to the world and increase and enhance what business is all about. Today, I'm joined by Rob Barnard-Weston. Rob and I have actually known each other only a short period of time, but I feel in that time, I've known a lot about him already. We've had some fascinating conversations all around the world of purpose, sustainability, governance, CSR, and many other things. Before we launch into it, Rob is going to talk about lots of things here, and we've keyed this up as a bit of a conversation between two people. Uh, Rob disguised himself as somebody who stirs things up so that people think differently. And he often throws curveballs in. So I'm fascinated by what this conversation is about to bring. I'm prepared for anything. We've got 45 minutes of conversation. It may go on longer. So be prepared, buckle up. <laughs> and here's the show with Rob Barnard-Weston. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Phil. It's nice to see you. Yeah, thank you. So you said stirs things up and helps people think differently. What does that mean? So, yeah, good question. About, um, what do I do when I'm trying to sort of throw curved balls into conversations with people in order to help them think differently. I realized reflecting back um, on my own career that I had needed that myself. And and the reason is I was living a sort of double life. I was, yeah. I, w- I was actually working in ad agencies as a copywriter and a demographics analyst and a new business exec. So I was all sorts of stuff. Um, and trying to make money, you know, I was pedaling real hard, trying to make money, thinking I'm going to set up a, uh, 
a future of great prosperity and um, this is how we're going to do it by selling lots of stuff for clients right. in this era ad agency and yeah. I had great colleagues great bosses great training great client relationships it was fantastic uh, if that's all you wanted was just to make money uh, but in my free time I was doing voluntary work to repair the damage actually <laughs> I suddenly realized that we were doing by selling a hell of a lot of um, BMWs and NatWest pension plans <laughs> <laughs> so I needed to stop and think what this is crazy I'm leading this double life and you know the two halves are actually at odds with each other it's a schizoid existence and I re so my point is I see that happening all the time in the world today as well so I go into these conversations with cap capable experienced intelligent compassionate people and they're like one person in the boardroom and somebody else in the kitchen at home with the grandchildren you know um and now i've got grandchildren i really want them to think differently because our grandchildren are going to pay the price if we don't wake up yeah i think that's interesting pay the price and you know we're, we're, we're recording this just days after cop 26 has finished in glasgow and we might talk about that later on but i think there's mm. there's a key few things you mentioned there about you know you're getting that balance between the voluntary work on one side which is helping clean up the mess relative to the you know copywriting that was promoting selling or selling all these products <laughs> so you've got this real conundrum between the two and this tension between what you did to earn money versus what you did to change the world in different ways yeah um, so, so I, I did a little bit of googling on on you as i always do before i enter these podcasts and i found lots of information and uh, one of the things i found found which i i love is very much key around um it says here with degrees in philosophy and responsibility in business practice He's published three books on ethical enterprise and taught the subject of both, both of Bath universities. And then I read a love bit which says, Rob's been involved in corporate social responsibility, strategy, culture, change, education, training, communications for over 20 years. He, he specialised in reconciling people, planet and profit. Over 20 years ago, the people, planet and profit wasn't the thing that people talked about. So what drove you into this apart from realising your copywriting was, was destroying the planet? What was the thing that resonated for you that said i've got to make a difference you know what actually the most important thing of all it was becoming a father um yeah. and so that actually is, that's probably a, a quote from a while ago because that the daughter whose imminent arrival triggered this thinking or be, triggered the beginning of this sort of thinking in me which ultimately led to this recognition of the conflict in my life between my professional and my family uh lives um was becoming a dad and that that little baby who was soon to be born at that point is now 32 and has her own first child so i'm a granddaddy and is producing two more soon she's got <laughs> twins uh, in on the way um it was becoming a dad and suddenly wow. pausing to, to think hang on a minute what are my responsibilities to this child mm -hmm. who's about to arrive uh and how is my professional life um helping or hindering her hopes for the future because she's going to be calling me to account before too yeah. long and boy does she call me to account now she's a mama she's 32 years old and she takes no prisoners yeah <laughs> yeah and, and actually it's interesting creating a, a a woman who speaks her mind and actually you know thinking back 32 years ago whatever that takes us into the you know the early 90s effectively mm. Um, mm. csr was something we talked about and there were there were there were various pockets of people doing things about it there were climate change scientists talking about it but it wasn't really mainstream and I say mainstream because I think it's become mainstream we've all had to take a you know a, a good look at what we do and how we do things now um, and I, I was reading a in fact I was listening to a podcast this morning with James Clear and Peter Atier talking um, mm -hmm. and James was talking about how he wrote a book called Atomic Habits yeah and in there he said one of his things is he reckons um, which is really true 
people change their habits when something happens. And he was giving the example of the smoker who will suddenly quit smoking when, when the child is born because they don't want to put smoke around that child. Other mm. people just continue. But there has to be something in your journey that gives you that point to say, I'm no longer a smoker. I don't smoke. I've moved on. And for me, I love that connection for you saying, you know, you, you suddenly realized 32 or so years ago, something had to change. Mm. Still took quite a while before I got it into my... But, you know, to be fair to myself, I suppose, there was no CSR. There was no such thing as CSR. People would say, so what is it you do with this? I left my ad agency and started something called Groundswell, which was, in my mind, like an ad agency for human rights and environment stuff, Uh, you know. Um, And actually, I was able to get business because most of the people operating in that field back then were charities. So, you know, you're talking about human rights charities like we did a lot of work back then with uh, Survival International, which was a charity uh, who looked after human rights for indigenous tribal peoples. Um, There was, we did a lot of work with the Soil Association who were focused, of course, on sustainable agriculture, food Mm. production, all that malarkey. Um, And uh, so for the first few years, we only really did work with non-profits because nobody in the private sector was doing much. Though I'd only worked with private sector clients almost entirely prior in my ad agency life. But then suddenly, funnily enough, after a few years, a few private sector clients from my former life began to say to me, do you know what? You're kind of bilingual now. You speak the language of social and environmental responsibility, let's say, Mm. but you also know us inside out as a former marketeer that used to work with us for in the profit driving uh, world in the private sector. Can we please talk about bringing those two things together? So suddenly I was getting work from Barclays, Unilever, Hewlett Packard, people like that I'd, I'd worked with as clients in my marketing life. Yeah. But now in my, what was beginning to become known as corporate social responsibility life. So we kind of accidentally making it up as we went along. Yeah, yeah. We're part yeah. of creating a career. We weren't the only people doing it, but there weren't many. Yeah. There was Don yeah. Elkington over at Sustainability Limited. There were one or two people in, in, in other parts of the world, but there wasn't much going on. Yeah. Um, so it was good. We made it up as we went along. And then, you know, Anita Roddick started booming with Body Shop and she came along to us and said, look, I think we should do something in academia too. So I'd be happy to set up that thing, which she did called the New Academy of Business. Uh, they became, she asked me to help with the communications for the New Academy of Business. Um, Bath University was the partner with New Academy of Business to set up what became the Responsibility and Business Practice Program at Bath. So back in the 1990s, suddenly we had another big corporate leader, you know, because Body Shop was a thriving business. I mean, yeah. massively successful, commercially speaking, but driven by Anita. And she was absolutely the warrioress that we needed. You know, she yeah. said, look, I've got, I'm a billionaire, so I can make shit happen. Excuse my English accent. Um, you know, and in order to make that happen, I've got to be profitable. But I'm not in it only for the profit. The money is great and it's fantastic being so prosperous, but it's a means to an even greater end. And we can fund that even greater end because we're so prosperous. And I, that's when I began to see that, hang on, yes, you can reconcile those two things, purpose and profit. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love that in terms of that story, in terms of, you know, Anita Roddick coming on there. And I think back to, you know, the early 90s when I started my management education, um, we all talked about the body shop as, as, you know, what body shop was doing in terms of just transforming the way we talked about things, you know, against animal testing was a thing. And it was all about this sustainability. And, and, you know, Anita really was the person who was held up there as, you know, the, the, the answer to it all in terms of that profit versus purpose versus sustainability. 
uh, against mm-hmm. that balance. So, so tell me about that that early journey because people weren't people weren't taking notice of it before people like Anita and yourself came along to it. So you went from advertising agency, advertising you say other you know products, cars, consumer products, to realizing there's something different out there. But then you had all these companies mm. wanting to do something about it. Mm. What was their what was their need for them? Do you think was it was it just to say we're doing, it, or were they did they want to make a difference? You know what? I think to be honest. Um, so you're absolutely right. We need in any individual's life, we need a sort of aha moment. Yeah. And then suddenly, as you say, you know, the smoker stops smoking, as James Clear was saying. And I've seen that. I'd love to get into at some point today or another day the whole addiction thing because I think yeah. addiction recovery is a really useful model for understanding human addiction as a whole you know i think we're addicted to economic growth uh using the addiction model that is used by addiction recovery professionals in the world for alcoholics and smokers and you know crack addicts and workaholics you name it Mm. um but also the, the 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 drug of choice to use their language in our cultural addiction to economic growth is, is money and oil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so burning oil uh, is a means by which to create money, which we can also burn wastefully. Um, so that's one whole issue there. But going back to your other point, I think it not only needs an aha moment in the lives of, of, of individuals, but it, you need individuals who've had those aha moments to decide they're going to go out there and make something happen. And, and in some cases, we were lucky that, those people became clients. So I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, we were working with in the early days of the private sector engagement with Groundswell, my sort of you know pretend ad agency that was focused on sustainability, as it was now becoming uh, called. Um, we had uh, and a very interesting session. It was called the Renaissance People uh, Program. We were working on sort of organizational development stuff. And the idea of that program, working with some great colleagues of mine, um with an outfit called wonderfully called tlc it actually stood for the learning company but you know we know what it really stood for um and tlc sat me down and said we'd like to do sustainability stuff as part of this uh mission but what we're really all about is aligning personal with organizational values and so they i mean that was when we started working with some really big corporations and an example of an individual uh who really made a difference was we ran a program for unilever uh, about aligning personal and organizational values. It was yeah. called the Renaissance People Program. And there was a young guy in his 20s um, by the name of Mark Rutter in the group that we were... Where I facilitated a four-day retreat with a colleague at TLC. Okay. Mark is, of course, now the Dutch Prime Minister, but in those days, he was a middle manager in HR at Unilever. And the reason why that's very significant is because... I saw a light bulb, you know, metaphorically speaking, go on over Mark's head during one of those mm. sessions during that four-day retreat. Yeah. And um, I remember Mark getting very excited. There were some very, very senior Unilever leaders there and other people who were part of what they saw as this whole organizational values thing that was beginning to – it was very embryonic. Anyway, uh, the next thing that happened was Mark began to drive – some processes of change, which ultimately, of course, led to what Paul Polman did years later. Yeah. You know, in a way, Mark and his colleagues uh, and his more senior colleagues who were on our retreat with him and with others, very, uh, they were great visionaries and they, they created the means by which a guy who was still young, still relatively middle management, not senior management, could begin to unfold his vision for what could happen. And mm. the result, mm. of course, was that um, the ground was set for 
what Paul Pullman later went on and did. And, and, and one of the reasons I mentioned that one is because Paul Pullman, working on the conditioned ground, the conditioned soil that Mark and others had created way back, even earlier than Paul's entry into the business, which I think was about, well, early noughties, wasn't it? 20, yeah. 2000 and something in the early noughties. What Mark and the others had done was set the scene for what Paul went on and did. But what Paul did was to say, right, first off, Point that he actually said to me one day, he said, I, I announced we were no longer going to report to shareholders on a quarterly basis the same day they hired me as chief exec. And I'm like, okay. He said, yeah, well, I figured they wouldn't fire me and hire me on the same day. So that was I got away with that. Um, but he said, part of not reporting on a quarterly basis was because I knew it would take a little while to get this whole sustainability thing going. But that ultimately, the shareholders would be glad we had if they just trust me and gave me the time to really make it rock and roll, mm. this sustainability thing could actually make us more prosperous as well as more purposeful. And of course, when he stood down 10 years later um, as chief exec, uh, having approached it brand by brand, by which I mean commodity by commodity, uh, you know, life voice soap mm. would be the focus for this six month uh, blast then we'll focus over here on this washing powder then we'll focus over here on this whatever food product um the ones he he worked through with this sustainability he and amazing teams of people all over the world had worked through were the most profitable products they were selling so he'd really made the point that prosperity and purpose are indeed mutually enhancing if you just think it through set you know, understand that's the beacon you're aiming for yeah. and then get a team of people focused on getting towards that beacon and prove the point. And in their case, they proved it very, very powerful. Yeah, I love that. And, and I love that point you were talking about what, what Mara did at the beginning was about laying the, you know, creating the fertile soil for this to happen, building the foundation. So, so people coming into Unilever later on could then start looking, okay, we've laid the foundations. What is it we need to do to help us develop our business and someone like Paul Polman and, you know, taking on things like the UN, UN sustainability goals and mm. helping focus those into the business. But I think the key bit you're saying there is they laid the foundations, they work brand by brand, and then they prove that each one of those brands that have been worked on actually demonstrated that prosperity and purpose and sustainability could live together. And yep. I love that as a story. Absolutely fantastic. And, and I mean, I'm not going to go on all day, but I could give you all sorts of examples. Very brief, uh, one again, very early in our work, um, there was a brilliant guy. Again, he was he was he was he was more of a tech uh, a tech guy in the labs at Hewlett Packard, but he was also chairman of the local, in fact, Bristol, because the Bristol uh, branch of Hewlett Packard was where we were then okay. uh, working. He said, "I'd like to try and get what I do as chairman of Bristol Friends of the Earth into Hewlett Packard." So he just put up a notice. He spoke to the to bosses and they said, yeah, go for it. He set up a notice in the canteens and the toilets and so on saying, anybody who's interested in environmental stuff and social responsibility stuff, meet me in meeting room B, five o'clock on a Friday, free coffee, you know, bring your ideas, bring your notepads. And next thing, two years later, and this is why it's such a joy to be working with people like, again, this was, I suppose he, this was Simon Forsyth, Dr. Simon Forsyth, and he was the equivalent of the Mark Rutter, I think, in the Unilever. Yeah. Uh, he was at Hewlett-Packard. And within two years, uh, Hewlett-Packard in, uh, I think it was Boise, Idaho, the, the global headquarters, said to him, you're saving us so much damn money with all these amazing you know, ideas that are unfolding out of the UK uh, branch. Um, why don't you just pick a team, you know, go full-time on this, stop inventing new 
printer cartridges in the labs and just start doing only this stuff as environmental lead for Hewlett Packard Global. Uh, and of course, they made a bloody fortune, but they also made oh, a big difference. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. That's the thing about making that difference. And I think yeah. that's the, that's the thing that you know, it, it, you know, it, it always takes one person to stand up and make a difference. You know, you talk about Mark, you talk about Simon, you talk about Paul Polman, and actually, if you go back, you know, talk about Anita Roddick. But also, mm. that's what you did when you when you realised that the the error of your ways, so to speak, and things <laughs> needed to change, which a lot of people don't realise that. And I think mm. that's, that's the right thing. So there's a, there's a journey you've gone on there in terms of you know, realizing that something had to be done differently. Um, how different or how difficult do you think it was in those early days for companies to really adopt this? Because it, it takes someone to stand up there and they, you know, do a, a Greta and sit at the school gates and say, I need to do something different. But mm. somebody has to stand up and say, we need to do this. How difficult yeah. was that in the early days? It, well, we were lucky in that we weren't quite the earliest to the game. So I always recognize, for instance, John Elkington's work. You know, John saw it before almost anybody in the world, to be quite frank. And to this day, I still am enormously grateful to John for being the guy that was kind of right, right at the very front, you know, facing that cold wind of yeah. denial, to use, a, again, a, a, an addiction term. You know, the reason why alcoholics and smokers and others keep on doing what they're doing while knowing intellectually that they're killing themselves and thereby jeopardizing the well-being of their families and so on, is because they managed to maintain this amazing denial. And Freud uh, was, was one of the most uh, enlightened people on the topic of denial when he said humans are able somehow to be both fully aware of and fully ignorant of the same fact and the same person at the same time. And that's a weird, a weird behavior of humans, which most species sensibly avoid. But, you know, um, that's what I think is, was going on. And so people like John Elkington said, wait a minute, you know, we're in denial. Mm. You know, this is crazy. But we're not only in denial of the damage we're doing to ourselves, in our future selves and our successors, our loved ones, but we're in denial of the potential for, again, massive win-win opportunity. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. prosperity and purpose can actually not only be be work together, but can enhance each other. Yeah. And I so, yeah, it, it, was, it was early days, but we weren't quite the earliest. And thank yeah. you, John and others, for, for showing the way. But but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I then, you know, fast forward 32 years or however many years it is, there's not a lot of businesses really doing it properly, I don't think, yet. People no. are still playing lip service. You know, we, we can name the, the handful that are making a difference. Uh, and then there's some that are playing at it. And I look on my wall here, you know, I, I look back to the, the UN Sustainability Goals. You know, there's 17 of those there. If I went out and talked to most UK businesses, would they know anything about those? I think the answer is probably not. Exactly. So, so there's something... Something that we're all still in denial, possibly, and I, and I, I you know, that Freud quote is interesting about awareness and ignorance in the same breath, because mm. I think a lot of people now in the UK, possibly, and you know, I do a lot of podcasting in the, in the US and Europe, are aware of what we need to be doing, but there's all this, this denial. There's the you know, come back to your drug addiction point of view, actually, that maybe we we know what we should be doing, but hey, it's really nice having that cigarette or taking that crack cocaine. Let's yeah. just keep going. And I think that's the thing. We need to almost flip that to say, what do we need to do differently? How, do, how does John Elkington's thinking come around? Actually, we can get that win-win around mm. sustainability and prosperity. Mm. That's the key. But it, it's not happening yet, is it? I don't think. No, it isn't. And <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, so one of the other great things John Elkington's done over the years is to uh, publish a series of books on these. So, I mean, way back in the day, I think if it wasn't his first, it was one of his first, uh, Cannibals with Forks, 
was was a great one for that woke up quite a few people but even 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 john you know was only able to wake as you say a few yeah. uh, individuals uh, uh, to the the, the 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 need for this and the potential of this in every way um and i put something together uh, a bit of a rant between book covers called organismics right. and the reason it's called organismics okay. i published it in I know a lot of people say, uh, organic, and I'm like, yeah, well, it excites me, but actually it's about systems theory and organizing our organizations as if they were organisms, because actually they are, you know? And if the, the point of that was to say, look, that if you look at a forest or an ocean ecosystem, what you find is there's no waste. All output from one part is input to another part, right? The only place you'll find waste is humans. We create all waste. Um, and systems theory says, well, it's, rather wasteful creating yeah. waste you know yeah. duh. so uh, and uh, my book was saying having um corporate behavior to, to stay with the private sector for, for, for now although i think public sector academic sector you know third sector we're, we're wasteful as a species where however we may shape up our careers uh, and in whatever sectors but if we start thinking about business as if as as a forest thinks you know um, I, you you find that what was deemed waste can become profit, and then things are really beginning to rock and roll. So yeah. there was a guy, to take another example, uh, I don't want to witter on about my book too much. I'll talk about other people's books because they're <laughs> often better than mine. Um, I, we did some work, uh, run a program down at Schumacher College in Devon, uh, again, a long time back now, but, but it, it's, we're seeing ripple effects to this day from some of the things that were discovered in that gathering. Um, and there's a guy called Gunter Pauli who wrote a book called Upsizing. And the reason he called it Upsizing was he said, look, we do, in order to enhance profits, one thing, we classic thing that we often do, and there was a lot of it going on then, is downsizing. So we'll say, well, let's shed a load of people, yeah. you know, um, and then the payroll will go down. We'll be more profitable. Um, and he said, what you're missing is the fact that you're doing that because you think in linear terms, not systems eco-cycle terms yeah. and the so he said okay let me show you what i mean by this and show you how upsizing can happen and, and you're upsizing your profits as well as your, your 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 sustainability initiatives and what he did was he went to uh he he, he actually set up a, a research center in japan at the un university i think it's right. tokyo and it was called the Zero Emissions Research Institute. And the book was focused on some of the things coming out of there. And their practical demonstrations included one fantastic upsizing initiative where he said, right, got a brewery over here and it makes beer. Now, thinking in old fashioned linear terms, the way you make beer is you get a load of grain and some other yeah. ingredients and a lot of very energy intensive processes. And you turn that grain with water and yeast and God knows what into beer. And then you chuck away the grain and everything else that isn't beer. They said, what you've got in that finished product is like whatever, you know, 4.6% of the costly uh, ingredients that have gone into creating it. And the rest is yeah. being expensively disposed of away. in yeah. landfill or whatever. He said, so why are you chucking out the grain? Uh, well, it's got a very high lignocellulose content. And therefore, it can't be composted, for instance. Okay, well, what breaks down high lignocellulose stuff? That's what wood you mean is kind of woody stuff. Yeah, okay. Mushrooms. I know, rather than paying a fortune to landfill that waste grain uh, coming out of the beer brewing process, yeah. why don't we create shiitake mushrooms, which sell for more than fillet steak by the kilo, 
And suddenly we're upsizing. We're taking on more staff. We're making more profit. We've got more profit centers because we're yeah. selling shiitake mushrooms to Japanese restaurants who love them for a fortune. And that waste, so-called, has now become an asset because it's the substrate on which we're growing a very profitable second product. Yeah. product. Yeah. And then he said, okay, right, what's coming out of the back end of that? That former high lignocellulose grain, which has now become the substrate for a very profitable new product line, called shiitakes, as well as beer, um, is apparently a really high-quality cattle and chicken fodder. So let's set up some chicken farms and cattle farms next door to the mushroom farms next door to the brewery. Yeah. And suddenly they're now selling beef and yogurt and eggs and chicken meat and you name it. And he said, okay, now let's see what's going on. What's the so-called waste coming yeah. out of that? Oh, I know, chicken shit and, excuse my French again, yeah. and cow manure. So what can we do with that? I know. Let's put it in an anaerobic digestion unit and turn it into energy. Guess what you can do with energy? Produce heat. Guess what is the most expensive commodity in brewing beer? So it's full cycle. You got it. It's an organism. And so I wrote organismics to say, wait a minute, you can make 10 times the profit. You can cut the waste to zero. And that's why Gunther Pauli called his outfit the Zero Emissions Research Institute. It was all about making business rock and roll commercially because you've made it rock and roll ecologically and socially because you've you've employed loads more people, you've trained loads more apprentices, you've taken unemployment in these, you know, impoverished communities in rural areas, which often in these 21st century days are impoverished because of mechanization and international food logistics. Anyway, I could rattle on all day, but you see what I'm saying. And I love that that cycle, isn't it? It reminds me of a Back in back in two thousand and five or so, I worked with an amazing company called Volac, who are based over in Cambridgeshire, and they produce whey powder. But when they started that business, grandfather started it. It was all about taking the whey, which was thrown away on farms, <laughs> and they they used to take it for free. But then people realised there was a lot of value in this whey product. And now, if I look at it, you know, whey is in a lot of products now. But mm. actually, back when it, that business was started. It was a product that was just binned, whereas now they've gone through that full cycle. And interesting, Volac have been involved in a lot of how do you build sustainable farming over the last 15 to 20 years and beyond to help enhance the whole of that system to make their business work forwards, but actually to enhance the whole of the sustainability industry. And we did yeah. some work way, way back with an organization called um, Forum for the Future. And yeah. that was looking at how do you help build a sustainable business for a sustainable planet? And, and, and I was involved in that back in 2006 or seven, I think it was. Um, fascinating business, but you've just made me think about that, that zero emissions. That's what they were trying to create. We didn't use that language, but that's what it was all about, that cycle. Mm. Um, Gunther Pauli is a great visionary. There's some, I mean, there, honestly, there's some fabulous uh, chunks of work going on out there. But the, 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 to get back to your earlier point, there's still only such a small number of people who are recognizing and acting upon this. And, and it yeah. seems to me rather absurd that we're, if, if in the name of profit, we deny profit opportunities as well as ecological damage done by our profit-only focus. Mm. Well, that's that's not shooting yourself in the foot. That's machine gunning both your feet off. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's wrong way. And this is what comes out. You know, we talk about purpose, and I always say to people, you know, the best businesses have been proven to be those ones who have got a purpose above and beyond making money. Mm. And often I talk to people, like, you know, I use the word, okay, simply, I'm a coach, therefore I work in in different areas, but I work in terms of commercial and cultural. Cultural is about building something different in the business and now i find some businesses who just want to make commercial returns revenue up cost down make more money 
But I know those that are most successful are the ones who work on the other side of the fence and say, let's build a culture. Let's get people really engaged in our business. Let's, let's build something where people buy into our purpose and therefore they come to work with their blood, sweat and tears as opposed to the commercial ones where they just want your money. Yeah. And ultimately, the cultural businesses, the ones that have got a purpose above and beyond you making money, will inevitably make more money than those who just set out to be commercial. That's my yeah. belief. And I'm, I'm, I'm standing by that because I believe and I've seen it. And those are the ones who are going to produce a better, better system, better planet, better environment, better engagement, all those things. Exactly. exactly. And actually, the point you've made, you've used one of my favorite words right there, engagement. So just, yeah. I mean, there's many different uh, stakeholder groups that one can engage with this process. In fact, there are a few one can't engage with this process. Uh, and for me, uh, one, the key, I realized, looking back, as I became a grandfather a year and a bit ago, I had to sort of stop and ask myself, okay, how do I up my game? I've only got so many years of working life left in this now creaky mind and body of mine. Uh, how can I up my game for my granddaughter? Uh, in the same way that her mother induced me to up my game from nowhere to somewhere, uh, rather falteringly, back in the you know, in 89 when she was born, that was when that really started. That seed of that idea was sown in my mind then. Um, and uh, what I realized was communications was what had made most successful. As I look back as a grandfather, just yeah. starting you know, a year and a bit ago, uh, it was always communications. But, uh, but I mean, in, in, when I use that term, I mean what I call integrated communication. So it's internal and external comms, mm -hmm. media-based and interpersonal dialogue-based comms. Uh, and so uh, to take one example again of that, I found when I was teaching this stuff at Bath University some years back, and I found teaching in the next door building, a guy called Bruce Rayton, Professor Bruce Rayton, and he had done the numbers on employee engagement. So internal okay. comms, uh, use, using internal comms to drive employee engagement around this corporate social responsibility, sustainability, uh, ESG, regenerative econ economics, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, driving using internal comms employee engagement, he did the numbers and he showed that the first quartile in employee engagement compared with the fourth, and this stuff really drives employee engagement very successfully, and I, he did the numbers on that specifically, but he demonstrated that the first quartile compared with the fourth were typically returning twice the net profits, two and a half times the revenue growth rates, and 20 times the employee-driven innovation rate. Well, and bear in mind that people like Google you know, the, the, the whole tech uh, business community, most of their new products and their most profitable products come from employee-driven innovation. So, you know, Google don't give people a day a week off to do their own projects for nothing. They do it because that's how they got Google Maps. That's how they got yeah. all sorts of other Google products that make them billions today is because innovation coming from employees is really driving their business success. 20x by employee engagement and he said what are the key things that seem to be consistent correlated with employee engagement mm. they are very simply um strategic narrative what is this organization for yeah because if it's only for making already rich people slightly richer who's going to get turned on among the employees by that yeah especially if they're not stockholders <laughs> to um yeah. uh, uh employee voice so are, am i heard when i come up with an idea does my boss say well that's pretty cool i'll take that to the board come with us and we'll see if we can make it happen or at least find out whether it could do. Mm. Uh, or if I've got a problem, boss, you know, can you please help me to resolve this by oh, getting right. it discussed? Yeah. If you get no employee voice, that doesn't work. So that, again, is internal comms. Um, the third of the four criteria for success in employee engagement was um, 
am I seen as a human being or a human resource? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's kind of related to the last one, but it's all about line manager relationship. And that's really important too. And then finally, guess what? Say do gap. Is what this company says aligned with what it actually does in the world, or are they hypocrites? And in which case, I don't want to be seen to be working. I'm ashamed. I, I remember not talking, not naming any names, being engaged by a major global banking client one time because they said, Do you know what we found out? You know, these lovely shoulder bags that we give away free to all our employees to carry their laptops around, because it's got the company logo on it, they turn it round to face inward so that nobody can see they work for us. We're ashamed because they're ashamed. We need to change that. Can you help us with our employee engagement through sustainability, CSR, and so on? And indeed we did. It was a fabulous program and it made a massive difference. We ended up engaging their 500 top IT leaders around the world. And the results to this day are still rippling out and have made a massive difference both ethically and commercially and i think that's the key isn't it so 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 full circle you mentioned the word esg in there a few times and uh you know you and i came to came to in conversation through a, a new business which you've got involved in you've you've been involved in lots of businesses over the time and you know again when i look at it you've been involved in charities you've been involved in trading systems you've been involved in community action groups you've been setting up farmers markets you set up baths first eco hotels there's loads of things there but you're mm. one of your latest ventures is this this business called transform esg Mm. And I, I think maybe that's a good segue. You talked about integrated communication because I think the reason I love what Transform is doing is about that ESG piece. But how do you transform that communication conversation? Mm. So I wonder, is it worth just talking about what Transform ESG does and how that can bring some of this stuff to the world in a different way at this stage? Yeah, thank you. Um, and it, 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 the, the mention I made just now about um, waking up to the fact that I needed to up my game now I'm a grandfather. It's not just because I'm a grandfather, obviously. It's not about me. It's about, you know, I happen to be a grandfather, but I'm looking at my granddaughter's generation and thinking, if you listen to what, you know, the IPPC is saying that was very much uh, banded about at COP26, ending only last week, of course, um, you can see that my grandchildren's generation is going to be leading a very, very different life from ours. And so I needed to up my game. So, again, I made reference to it um, obliquely just now, what what I had to stop and ask myself was, what's worked over this 30, call it roughly 30 years now, mm. of work in this field of sustainability? What's worked well and what's worked not so well? And how can I make sure that I do more of the stuff that does work yeah. and less of the stuff that doesn't work? Um, and in looking back over those decades of work in this field, what I came to realize was, yes, it's about communications. The ones that everything that's really worked well has had communications at heart. So I actually, I got in touch with Veronica Hannon, Ronnie Hannon to her friends. And she's been a friend of mine for many years and said, Ronnie, I've been stalking you in the best possible (laughs) commercial only way, of course, um, for all these years uh, to say, we need to combine our, because she's also very purpose-driven. You know, yeah. She was raised by visionary parents who were entirely focused on making the world a better place uh, in all the most appropriate, honourable and effective ways through, for instance, the um, uh, Initiatives of Change uh, uh, organisation. And uh, it's time we put our professional skills and experience and contact lists together and did what we both know really, really works best, and that is combining... Mm what you know, environmental and social responsibility stuff and government stuff, ESG, I think is a good descriptor. And I'm glad it's beginning to become more widely used as a term to describe what this is all about. ESG, 
ultimately for me works best when it's informed by comprehensive and integrated communications programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interesting, isn't it? Because because I love that word ESG, and I was I was playing with those those letters in my head recently and thinking, you know, ESG, environmental sustainability and governance. And actually, I think there's something around that engagement and scaling mm. and growth. Mm. You can engage your teams, you can scale your business, and it will enable us all to grow together. So mm. I'm just playing with those words because I think ESG is, is you know, it's a it's a name that we're taking on board. You know, CSR I think was the name we used to use. Mm-hmm. ESG is replacing that, but I think there's something there about those businesses who who can come together to mean something to society, to build something which is which has got an environmental focus. They're building something which is sustainable, and they're doing right by putting the right governance structures in place. And, yeah. and you mentioned there about you know communications at the heart of it because I think it is at the heart, but I think actions speak louder than words, as we all know. Mm, so those businesses mm. who are going to really make a difference are the ones who are talking about it and actually doing something mm. fundamentally different in the way they run their businesses. Mm, and you know, coming back to our conversation earlier, you know, that when, when you originally started this off, you know, thinking about the work with the body shop, the body shop is carrying on many years later with a purpose at heart. Yeah. And I think there's something there because we know those businesses, like you talked with Paul Coleman and Unilever, those brands that actually had sustainability there were the ones that are able to produce a commercial benefit and do good for the world. Yeah. Actually, so, do you know, you've reminded me of something wonderful that happened with Anita, again, going back a while. I mean, sadly, we lost her to, uh, actually, to her, her, her passion for, for progress, so to speak, was ultimately, in a way, the reason we lost her. She was out in, I believe it was, I forget now where in the world she was, but anyway, she was somewhere in the world you know, empowering communities that were somewhat disempowered mm. and helping them to turn what they could produce into profitable, saleable commodities through her retail empire. Yeah. And um, a blood transfusion led to her um, contracting uh, a disease that ultimately killed her. And, and she died for this cause. I don't want to get, you know, melodramatic about all this, but I have to say, you know, it's a great shame that we lost Anita and it, that was why. You know that's part mm-hmm. of the reason why why we lost her far too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know she she was able to to help. I don't know. I I I, I could go on all day about you know, the legacy left by people like her. But mm-hmm. it, if we hadn't had somebody like that showing that it was possible and becoming a massive successful retail baroness or whatever you want to call her. she wasn't a baroness you, yes, know, she, know it, yeah. you know you hear about retail barons well she was a retail baroness and she managed to show that it wasn't only about the money the money was a fantastic way to do even more than nearly yeah. make money but make a lot of it you can make a lot of difference too i just yeah. i love the way she demonstrated that and i i'll always be grateful to her and i just want to flag up uh, and uh, make a mark um, on in her name um, in her memory to say thank you to her too yeah. she's a great great leader yeah and it's interesting isn't it? because i think you need that that leadership someone to stand up and and you know i i wrote a wrote a piece recently talking about you know in, in business you need strategists and you need orchestrators strategists yes. the ones who've got that vision they're able to to take that purpose and translate it into action and you need also probably in the same person and others that orchestrator somebody who can conduct the orchestra and get people to to, to march in tune to doing the right mm. thing you need to have that strategist and orchestrator type of language around you. And yeah. she was somebody who did that. She had a vision and she got people behind the cause. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Is really key. And actually, funnily enough, to, to um, circle back around or epicycle back around to your point about why did I go down the route of getting back to Ronnie and, and, and co-founding 
transform ESG. Yes. Ronnie's a brilliant orchestrator, and I'm I'm yeah. much more. Yeah, I'm able to say, okay, I can see a way we could do this, and I think it could actually, you know, quadruple the profits and halve the the uh, carbon impacts. So uh, let's get our strategy de- determined with this prospective client or this actual yeah. client, and make it happen. And I needed also somebody who's really good at being out there in the world and getting the world to recognize that if they only wake up to the potential of this on all these different levels in all these different ways uh, in other words business development and we've got dan o'connor and he's amazing at that so it's like i needed th- th- this was the sort of you know the, the triumvirate that was necessary because yeah. i've been trying to do all this on my own or bring in other people that could do it on an ad hoc basis in various different associateship arrangements yeah. um and i didn't need to especially as i'm getting a little bit more tired in my old and creepy age <laughs> Um, wait till the grandchildren really start to come along (laughs) so we've got dan doing business development and he's amazing at it we've got ronnie doing as you say the orchestration and then we've got rob hanging out with mates like you and just holding forth for a while and then going and have a cup of tea with his granddaughter and i think that's a lovely way to do it and i I realize that i'm all that stands between you and 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 looking after his granddaughter and we're gonna have to wrap up fairly soon um, so, so, so I think there's a couple of things I just want to just pick up on before we finish in that case. I love this story about the, the journey you've taken. I love the, the journey, the, the meandering path from, uh, from, from where you came from and talk about sustainability and, you know, um, understanding the troublemaker element of you, that somebody had to disturb <laughs> the environment to get out there and, and make a difference. Um, and you've, you've been connected with lots of businesses who have gone on to make a difference. But this latest venture is, you know, how do we do more of this? How do we bring more of the communications, the, the Rob, the copywriter from 30, 40 years ago, to bring that mm. language out there to mm. engage people? Because actually transforming ESG is about engaging people in that journey to realize mm. profit and prosperity and sustainability comes together by doing it and just, you know, creating a language around this, doing stuff. And I think that's what, you know, my passion is. And I'm... You know, we're hoping to do some events next year with Transform in terms of getting our message out there about what does purpose really mean and how do you create mm. a business that is purpose-led? Because mm. I think then we can all do better for the planet, people and prosperity combined. So yeah. I, I really believe there's a, there's a journey here. And I think you use the word internal and external comms. We've just got to create the message. We've got to get people on, on board with that and create a brand that says, this is why you must do this. Absolutely, exactly. absolutely. In fact, um, yeah, I know we're we're coming towards the, the close of this uh, uh, conversation, but you know, you and I will, I'm sure, converse. I hope for the rest of our lives and do stuff as, along the lines you've you've just described. But just one example of of, of something that's brewing right now. COP twenty six. You know, lots yeah. of people said, "Oh, it's a lot of hot air, and hot air is the problem." You know, we have got to get yeah. climate change down, and that's all about overheating the air and the ocean and the forests and everything else. But actually, they did do some useful stuff, and I think we can we can capitalize on that. But what's also needed, I think, Phil, in my humble opinion, is through events of the sort you've just been describing and processes with organizations and their leadership teams and their vertical and horizontal uh, uh, interdisciplinary teams, and also, by the way, inter-organizational programs, working with their suppliers, yeah. working with their customers, working with their critics, working with their competitors even uh you know i've done that in the past and that's been really successful in some cases where you've done a whole cross-sectoral program working with your competitors to make a difference out there in the world and everybody suddenly realizes hey we're all benefiting from the kudos and the uh uh you know the 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 media exposure for positive change that we're getting from this we don't need to compete on every level um one example that's brewing right now cop 26 talked a lot about the fact we've got to retrofit you know, how many houses? In Britain alone, it's 25 million, I think. Yeah. 
Right. So there's a massive business opportunity right there. And what's it going to entail and who's going to provide what's necessary to retrofit 25 million? And I'm only talking about our tiny island, let alone North America or yeah. you know, Australia or China. My gosh, enormous amount yeah. of work to be done. That's one of the busy, biggest business opportunities I've ever been. And, and, and I remember um, Lord Stern, as he is now, um, yeah. Nicholas Stern, as he was then, writing that brilliant climate change report for government, I don't know, what was it, but 12, 14, however many years ago. And to paraphrase appallingly and, you know, to misrepresent the subtlety and nuanced, carefully researched and articulated brilliance of that report, I saw the conclusion what he was saying in that was basically there's two ways to look at climate change. And one is to say it's the worst disaster ever visited upon humanity by humanity. The other is to say, hang on, look through the other end of the telescope. Is this not the biggest business opportunity we've ever had? And you know what? People who solve this phenomenally important and potentially devastating problem are going to clean up in every sense of the word. That's a phrase. You know what I'm saying? And actually, when you think about that, I think that that thing about clean up, because I think that is the key to it. We've got to clean up our act and do something differently. And actually, we, we come back to our denial. Too many businesses have been in denial for too long. And actually, the reports have been there. The information's been there. It's been just been it's, been it's been going over people's heads. They haven't been able to understand it. And, you know, we come back to the, the Paris Accord. We talk about that. We talk about COP. Mm. You know, there is big change coming and companies need to make a difference. And, you know, I've been talking with a a gentleman who's founding a business at the moment about how do we how do we install ranging from air source heat pumps to mm-hmm. electric charging points to solar panels to enable us to build sustainable homes you know and there's a massive market out there for for companies like that to help them build their businesses forward and i hope you know future lec is to me a business because actually it's all about the future of electricity how do we make that work mm. but actually, come back to your word just now i think it's about systemic thinking yeah. rather than linear thinking we've all got to think we're all part of this ecosystem business ecosystem planetary ecosystem and we've all got to do stuff together to make this work and i think that's, that's absolutely that's right yeah, absolutely right and actually it's funny you mentioned in future like you know they're in renewables we just to give you a little personal uh, anecdote um towards you know, before we wind this one up because i think it's it's inspiring we um as you as you rightly said we don't just do top-down change consulting to corporate leaders and government bodies and and so on uh, in on all scales actually but we also do bottom-up stuff we started the bath's first eco hotel we we um we also do bottom-up stuff so we started an eco hotel in bath we started the farmer's market the first farmer's market as you know also in bath and then got the bbc involved again communications ended up being 500, 500 and something more farmer's markets across the uk and still are um we also started a, an eco-artisan bakery company, the Thoughtful Bakery in Bath, which is uh, thriving still and has grown through the pandemic. Uh, but the reason I'm mentioning all this sort of stuff is what we've done, we just sold that hotel uh, as having fledged the fifth of our own children and yeah. seen in the birth of the first of our grandchildren and soon two more. Um, and we're putting the proceeds from the sale of that hotel into a zero-carbon retrofit house, which will have renewables on the top well, from somebody like Futurelec or from Futurelec, who knows? Um, yeah. um, and the 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 the, uh, the reason I mentioned that is, if we can using media communications and interpersonal communications and all that other stuff I talk about in this integrated comms model, if we can take that exemplar as we did with the farmers market in Bath, yeah. and then say, look, this is how we've done it. These are the mistakes we made that you don't yeah. need to because we're going to tell you how we went wrong. Here are the things that went really well, and you might want to replicate those and take them even further. 
But if we can turn one farmer's market yeah. using, in this in that case, the BBC and their engagement to, to create 530-something more farmer's markets, why can't we take one zero-carbon retrofit house project and turn it into 25 million of them? Lovely. What a lovely thought. Amazing, amazing. I love that. And you're right, at the end of the day, it just takes one person to make, the, to make it and show it's possible. Mm. And then everyone else starts to get onto the bandwagon of doing it because they realise there's a benefit to everybody in doing that. Um, yeah. I've, I've got one final question for you. And that question is, um, if you could go back and give the young Robert a bit of advice <laughs> and you could make a difference into the future, what would that piece of advice be? <laughs> Good one. Actually, I, I think I, I've got an answer. I don't know whether it's the answer, but it's been a bit of a wake-up call. Another thing that's really rather um, humbling for me is I didn't realise quite how powerful a change we were we were um, affecting yeah. by producing very, very, very empowered young women in our daughters. I'm not kidding you. I've read somebody far wiser than I uh, the other day who said, just listen to the young women. It sounds almost as sexist in the sort of, you know, uh, right on uh, virtue signaling way yeah. as the sexist world we've known with lots of white male control freaks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Old white male control freaks. Uh, I know, I'm putting my hand up, you know, maybe I'm one of those. Uh, but actually, I have realised that the one big difference between women and men seems to be that they have wombs. Yeah. <laughs> and because they have wombs, they are more focused on, you know, taking good care of everybody, including their not just their own children, but all children yeah. and children's children. Yeah. And it might even sound simplistic. It might even sound patronising. It might even sound like, as I say, virtue signaling. But actually, it's taken me a hell of a long time to notice that among my daughters, mm. there's some incredible work going on. I'm proud to say they're all out there in the world doing amazing things in various different organisations, focused on the solution rather than becoming exacerbators of the problem. Yeah. It, if you just listen to the young women, whoever said it the other day was right, I think, you can probably avoid a lot of mistakes and you can probably open up a lot of opportunity because these are people who have it built into their mindsets and physiologies that yeah. we've got to take great care of yeah. the children. And that is actually the key to the future. Yeah, I love that. And as a father of two young girls, I'm right over that kind of thing. I listen to my two young daughters and uh, they're going to love um, this. I say young, they're 18 and 16, but I think exactly that, you know, listen to young women because actually they've got a lot to say mm. uh, and whatever we did in the past has to be undone in the future and, mm. and built on as well. You know, at the end of the day, build on the sand at shoulders of giants. There's a lot of people out there who have done a lot of good work. Don't throw the baby out of the bathwater, so to speak. Let's Absolutely. move on what we've got. Let's build on that. Let's build on the you know, using the, the language you just know in terms of, you know, building what Anita Roddick did, what Paul Pullman did, what you've been doing, what John Elkington's been doing. Let's build mm. on that as a framework for the future and, mm. and listen to what we need to do differently. And, and at the end of the day, it only takes one person to make a difference. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we've all got the opportunity to do that. So uh, I shall listen to the young women in my life a lot better. <laughs> I'm going to go do exactly that right now. Yeah, go for it. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Um, there's so much things we've talked about here. I've, um, I've enjoyed it, and I'm sure there'll be many more conversations like this we can have in the future. So thank you, and Robert Barnard-Weston. Thank you. Thank you too, Phil. It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I've enjoyed recording it. This is just one of the great conversations I've had the privilege of being part of since I started recording the Sparks Bacon podcast. 
So please go back and listen to some of the others. There's some great content in there, some great contributors. And also, while you're at it, please leave a review of this show with your comments, because that helps other people like you find this content. And we want to bring about the change that we really know matters to people. It helps us grow. And also, think about what actions you want to take, because there's no point just listening passively. We want you to pick it up and do something with it. So what are the three key things you want to do? I can't hold you accountable, but if you want to, drop me a note, phil at igniumconsult.com. We're always keen to listen to what you have to say and actually introduce guests to us that you think will bring relevance to other people. We wish you well. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. Give us a review. Thank you.